0: Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger Chapter 10, Organization for Psychological Warfare, Part 2 In terms of supply, the materials gathered by the other agencies went to the Outpost Service Bureau, which ran a virtual informational Sears Roebuck for the outposts. Foreign demands for American materials were unpredictable. The OWI learned rapidly and effectively, and the material going out of the outposts to foreign audiences very soon reached a high level of quality. Other psychological warfare agencies at the national level were the CIAA, coordinator of the, later the office of, Inter-American Affairs, which conducted propaganda exclusively to Latin America and the Caribbean, and the OSS, Office of Strategic Services, which serviced the Joint Chiefs of Staff with intelligence and policy materials and served as a home base for its own units, which operated abroad under theater authority. No U.S.-based black propaganda operations were reported to the public. Reduced to the concrete terms of definite policy execution, as opposed to the making of policies that might or might not ever reach their supposed executors, and the routine working of operations, the national level was not important except for the two functions stated above—global shortwave, and source of supply. The decisive choices were made in the theaters or at the outposts, half the time in ignorance of what Washington policymakers had decided in conclave on that particular topic. When the author was in China, he found that the OWI China Outpost decoded its week-to-week propaganda instructions only after they were hopelessly obsolete. They were then filled. The theaters were able to use psychological warfare as and when they pleased. Between the ETO and Washington, close political-military coordination was possible. Between Washington and the others, it was impractical. The War Department participation in the control and planning of psychological warfare is shown in Chart 7, which represents the situation as of 1945. The propaganda branch, attached to G2 as a staff agency and not to Military Intelligence Service as an operating agency, served to carry out the psychological warfare functions of the War Department. The chief of the branch represented the Joint Chiefs of Staff at OWI meetings, along with his Navy confrere. He took care of official messages to the theaters pertaining to psychological warfare matters, and his office itself performed a few limited functions. One of these functions required the author to get up at 4.30 mornings in order to digest the overnight intake of enemy propaganda. He was joined in this by a Tehran-born, Colombian-trained Edward K. Marat. It was with real relief that he saw the Nazi stations go off the air. He was then able to pass the early bird business to his Persian colleague. The branch also made up propanel studies whenever these were warrantable at the general staff level. The deputy chief air was the vestigial remnant of a short-lived Army Air Forces propaganda establishment. He had direct access to the air staff and took care of things having a particularly air character. Abbreviations under theaters are explained below on page 187, since theater nomenclature for psychological warfare was never standardized. With the termination of hostilities, though it was not the juridical finish of the war. Both OSS and OWI were swept out of existence. By executive order of 20 September 1945, effective ten days later, OSS was broken up. The scholastic portions were dismembered and reassembled into the Department of State, where they presumably helped collate materials for the new Interdepartmental Central Intelligence Group CIG. The operational parts were handed over to the War Department. For all the author knows, some distressed colonel may have a desk full of fountain pens which explode, transmit radio messages, or can be used for invisible tattooing, along with an edible blotter, a desk telephone which is really a hand grenade, and a typewriter which is a demountable motor scooter. Such speculations are delightful topics on which to dwell, but the day of black propaganda is over. Obsolescence reduces all things, even OSS, to absurdity. The OWI perished a more lingering administrative death. It was transferred to the Department of State as an operating unit under the name Interim International Information Service IIIS, and a new Assistant Secretary of State, Mr. William Benton, took over its sponsorship. Later, under the abbreviation OIC, Office of International Information and Cultural Affairs, it was coordinated on January 1, 1946 with pre-existing State Department offices and with certain leftovers of the Office of Inter-American Affairs OIAA. It retained the global broadcasts on a limited budget. It still served the surviving outposts, which were being integrated with diplomatic and consular offices overseas. And for Korea, Japan, Germany, Austria, and Venezia, Giulia, it acted as a supplying service for the military government information programs in those areas. The Bureau of the Budget took over limited domestic functions when the OWI passed out of independent existence on the 31st of August, 1945. The Joho-kyoku Comparison of this United States system with the Japanese Board of Information, Joho-kyoku, is outlined in Chart 8. It shows the difference between integrated and disparate systems. The Japanese developed a close-knit system which combined public relations of both army and navy, all domestic government publishing, complete control of book publishing, magazines, press, radio and film, propaganda intelligence, and overall psychological warfare. The progress of an item through the Japanese psychological warfare system may look intricate when followed on a chart, but it was in fact much less intricate than the comparable American processing of an item. The only aspect of psychological warfare that does not show on the chart is the Japanese political warfare system, by the test of success, the best developed by any belligerent during World War II. The Japanese very early learned the simple rule. Political warfare cannot convert a sub subsistence economy and government into a satisfactory system, but political warfare can convert a subsisting area into one that has the illusions of prosperity and national freedom. To succeed in the face of economic difficulty, the political warfare must be shrewd, simple, insistent, and backed up with a touch of terror. The Japanese moved into the western colonial areas of the Far East between 1940 and 1942, Indochina, Malaya, Indonesia, the Philippines, parts of China, Burma, and areas inhabited by substantial Indian minorities. They organized the following independent governments. The imperial government of Manchukuo, Federated Autonomous Inner Mongolia, the reorganized national government of China, superseding earlier puppets, Malay, under Japanese military control but promised ultimate independence, the Republic of the Philippines, the Empire of Vietnam, later the Vietnam Republic, a dictatorship in Burma of the Adipati, Republic Indonesia, Azad Hind, Free Indian Government in Exile, and the Azad Hind fajj Quisling Indian National Army, which put large forces into the field against British-controlled Indian troops and helped to neutralize the entire military potential of India. The Independent Kingdom of Cambodia made independent by telling the helpless king that he need not let the French come back. These Japanese-sponsored governments flew their own flags, had enough troops to help Japan police their home areas, developed psychological warfare facilities with intensive Japanese assistance, and went through all the motions of independence. In 1944, some of them even held an international conference at Tokyo, thanking Japan for liberating all the non-white states and adopting high-sounding resolutions. The Siamese puppet ambassador to this meeting had the unforgettable name of His Excellency, the Honorable Wichit Wichit Watakan. Behind the pageantries of Japanese political warfare, economic and social realities were horrid. The Japanese printed money which had far less backing than cigar store coupons. They bankrupted all non-Japanese business so that the Japanese carpetbaggers could buy their way in cheap. Businesses owned by white foreigners were expropriated out of hand. They cut off communications, spread terror, raised the price of food, put hospitals out of business, degraded schools, and received the devoted loyalty of large parts of the cheated populations. It did not matter to millions of Burmese whether they had lived well under British rule or not. The British did not let them have their own flag, did not let them send ministers and ambassadors, did not let them run a scow up and down the river with a mortar on it, calling it a navy. The Miranda, the pageantry of politics, was what mattered. Not law and order, democracy, security, education, health. The same story might have been repeated on a larger scale throughout the Far East, perhaps ultimately, leading to something like Lothrop Stoddard's old nightmare, the rising tide of color. Countervening factors included the presence of Chinese agitation, both both Kuomintang and communist in leadership, guerrilla operations throughout Southeast Asia, and the ruinous economic effects of American submarine and 14th Air Force anti-shipping operations. Shipping losses drove the Greater East Asia co-prosperity fear below subsistence level and created a condition where even the most fanatic patriot realized the disadvantages of the situation. The Japanese put all the captured radios to work. They had traders of all kinds on their side, including, it is shameful to admit, Americans, Russians, British, Australians, and French. Despite the fact they occupied all of Guam, they never used a single Guamanian trader. Testimony to the simple loyalty to the U.S., of the Chamorro people, and to the popularity of the long-established U.S. naval government on the island. Japanese psychological warfare failed because the real warfare behind it failed. The Japanese could not whip their over-docile troops into a fighting frenzy without allowing those troops to behave in a way which made deadly enemies for Japan among the peoples she came to liberate. The Japanese did not have sense enough to be satisfied with 100% return per year on their money, wrecked the conquered economic systems with inflation, poor management, and excess exploitation. Even the Quislings became restless under the poor occupation policies of the Japanese, and before the war was over, a considerable number of Japanese Quislings re quislinged back to the United Nations side. Theater Psychological Warfare The Japanese had superlative, close-knit, psychological warfare staff organization within metropolitan Japan. They possessed many first-class field operators, first among them the true-life mastermind Major General K. Diohara, whose dinner guests often woke up the next morning with bad hangovers and high treason on their consciences. But the Japanese did not have adequate channels of communication, supply, and control between their smooth system at the top and the working propagandist at the bottom. The Kempetai military political gendarmerie, structure got in the way. Japanese propaganda lines lost touch with the strategic realities of their slow defeat. They did, instead, what any propaganda system does on the downgrade. They turned to repression instead of counter-propaganda with the inevitable result. In contrast, the American psychological warfare structure included theater operating units, usually called PWB, Psychological Warfare Branch, although it became PWD, Psychological Warfare Division, in shape, and did not grow beyond TPWO theater psychological warfare officer in China Theater. The supreme authority was, of course, the theater commander, on whose responsibility the operation had to be carried out. When propaganda bungled and got into the field of political trouble, it was the theater commander and not the subordinates who took the blame. Every theater was under the command of a general, except for Central Pacific, under Admiral Nimitz, and he used an army colonel as his propaganda chief. In most theaters, the political advisor was the buffer between psychological warfare and the commander himself. In the southwest Pacific, and later the headquarter of the Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers, Japan, General MacArthur instituted the Office of Military Secretary and made this officer responsible for reporting to him personally the developments in the propaganda field. Subject to local variation, the theater agencies faced similar problems. They had to serve in turn as a rear echelon to service the needs of combat propaganda, while working as the actual operating agencies for the bigger radio programs and the preparation of strategic leaflets. As the areas behind them became more consolidated, displays and films took their place beside news and leaflets as chores that had to be performed. Communications facilities were a problem. Purely military facilities could not, of course, be overloaded by the lightly coded transmission of hundreds of thousands of words of political and other news and guidance. The psychological warfare establishments had to jerry build communications facilities out of what they could borrow from the army or obtain from OWI supplies in the United States, or buy locally. In most theater organizations, the chief was a military man and the staff was partly military and partly civilian. Under General Eisenhower, PWD was not only army and OWI, but included OSS on the American side, along with British partnership, French participation, and other allied personnel as well. Under General MacArthur, OWI participated under strict army control. Under General Stilwell, no theater organization as such was set up. The G2, the political advisor or the general himself, handled propaganda matters when they turned up. Under General Wedemeyer, there was a theater officer. Under General Sultan, the OWI ran itself. The outpost serviced the theater. Under General Clay, Information Control Service, OMGUS, became an integral part of military control. The same thing happened in General MacArthur's reorganized PWB, an organization termed C.I.E.S. Civil Information and Education Section, had the organization and personnel not only of the American structure, but the usable purged parts of the Joho Kyoku obedient to its command and liaison. Other theaters had comparable arrangements, each suited to the theater. Figure number 50. Consolidation of Propaganda. Door Gods. One of the most unusual consolidation propaganda operations was the distribution of door gods. These were small, good-looking posters which traditionally displayed figures from the Chinese pantheon. During the war, farm families who had been accustomed to putting up new door gods each Lunar New Year found that they could not afford them. China Division, OWI, then run by F. M. Fisher, Richard Watts Jr., Graham Peck, and James Stewart, made up new door gods which showed American aviators, thus familiarizing the Chinese peasantry with our insignia and preaching the cause of inter-allied cooperation. End of Figure 50. The common features of all theater establishments were 1. Liaison or control from Army, State, and OWI, sometimes including OSS. 2. Responsibility to the theater commander. 3. Direct operation of strategic radio. 4 preparation of strategic leaflets and sometimes of tactical leaflets as well. 5. Use of local, native, or allied personnel. Within the theater staffs, the psychological warfare facilities were to a great extent assimilated for control and movement of personnel, supply, and so on. The G3s and G4s of the theater normally serviced the PWBs along with the rest of their work. The OWI and other civilian persons were put into uniform and given simulated rank, sometimes wildly disproportionate to their army counterparts. The Army G2s naturally worked with the PWB intelligence facilities. In some theaters, the G2 was ex officio, the chief of psychological warfare, as was the assistant chief of the staff G2, War Department general staff himself at home. The G1s usually kept out of the way of psychological warfare, and the housekeeping of the units was in most cases autonomous. Responsibility for financing psychological warfare was never established as doctrine. The State Department kept most of it off its budget, leaving the actual payments up to the War Department and the OWI to figure out. Oftentimes this resulted in a curious sort of neo-capitalism within the U.S.-owned socialism of the army. The two agencies would hold on to property as though it were a private property, on the basis of immediate title, without reference to the plain fact that all of it was paid for in the end by the United States Treasurer. OWI once murmured threateningly about bringing its radio material home from Manila rather than let General MacArthur's people hijack it. Such talk ended when the material was declared surplus or stolen. Field Operations Field operations were most highly developed in the Mediterranean and European theaters of operation. Combat propaganda units came into being, carrying fully equipped mobile radio stations and high-volume printing presses along with them. Later, under Schaef, these units developed further, and army-level organizations were set up which duplicated the theater organization on a reduced scale. See Chart 9 for Chart of an Army Unit. The tactical leaflet, page 211, came into its own with such units. It was possible to develop high-speed routines for using intelligence swiftly. Maps were dropped on the enemy in unfavorable situations. Order of battle became highly important for psychological warfare purposes when enemy units could be addressed by their proper unit designation or by the name of their commanders. Intelligence was brought into play. Bad food, bad supply, poor command, or mishandling of enemy forces in any way brought prompt propaganda comment. Radio was the least useful for tactical operations, simply because enemy troops do not carry private portable radio sets around with them. Radio was of high value in consolidation operations, passing along instructions to liberated populations, and telling civilians in the line of approach about measures which they could take for the common benefit of themselves and of the allies. A constant problem never completely ironed out was the use of airplanes for dropping purposes. The leaflet producers had, in all theaters, a tendency to prepare excellent leaflets, bail them, and send them along to the airfields in the expectation that an overworked, unindoctrinated Air Force staff would automatically pick up the leaflets, develop dropping mechanisms, pack the leaflets into planes, take them out, and drop them to the right language groups at the right time in the right place. This was, of course, so absurd from the aviator's side as it was to the civilians to let their brain children accumulate in hangars or warehouses. For strategic droppings, systemic arrangements could be made through proper official channels, and a regular air operation detailed to do the job. Tactical dropping did not allow enough time for elaborate staff to work in each instance, and recourse was had to psychological warfare liaison officers, either army officers or civilians with the approximate status of tech rep technical representative, a familiar sight on World War II airfields, to get in touch with the units, help them install dropping facilities, explain the leaflets to the actual pilots and bombardiers, and thus obtain a high degree of cooperation. In almost every theater, this policy succeeded, and a wide variety of leaflet bombs, leaflet dispensers, and other leaflet-circulating gadgets was developed. Artillery distribution also played a significant part. For front-line situations, artillery could do a better job than planes without risking aircraft in a quasi-combat operation. Leaflet bombs of considerable scope appeared, and could be made to fit almost any appropriate weapon. Circulation was also affected by means of clandestine operations to friendly civilians, frequently combined with airdrop of weapons, medicine, and other essentials. The organization of all these new functions had changed military organization. A whole new series of units were attached in echelon, each fitted to the appropriate level for its work. The rear area functions and strategic propaganda work always required a considerable proportion of civilian aid, since some of the best workers in this line were persons who either did not wish to join the army, or whom the army did not wish to have join it. These psychological warfare operations were unbelievably cheap, even if measured by the most conservative estimates of their success. It is impossible that the army of the future, whether American or foreign, will overlook this source of assistance. Psychological warfare nowhere replaced combat but it made the impact of combat on the enemy more effective. End of section 19